Just a little bit. There we go. All right. Please bow your heads with me real quick. Dear Jesus, God, I ask that you would be with us this morning as we open up your word. God, I ask that my words would not be spoken with men's wisdom, that they wouldn't be based on my ability to sway or my um, ability to turn a phrase, but that they would be based on your wisdom and your truth, because that's the only thing that saves. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me this morning, that you would teach your truth here, that only your word would be spoken and only your word would be heard. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Um, for many of you who are on Facebook that, uh, that are my Facebook friends, uh, you know that uh, for the past several days, I've been engaged in a battle of words with, uh, with several individuals um, in my family. Um, the basis for this long, uh, drawn-out debate that's been happening is uh, the four Planned Parenthood videos that have come out recently, uh, videos that show some very disturbing images, some very disturbing stories about Planned Parenthood workers um, doing some really disgusting things, things like picking through uh, parts of aborted babies uh, so that they could pick out the ones that they were going to sell, um, things like uh, Planned Parenthood workers um, talking about uh, conducting abortions after babies have been born alive, talking about um, basically murder, um, and any number of other really disturbing topics. Um, and as this discussion has evolved through the stages that usually happen in social media from rage and sensationality to discussion and finally apathy, the same refrain keeps happening over and over and over again. Those who oppose abortion, those who oppose Planned Parenthood, will say things like, these people are horrible, this is a terrible thing, why are we letting it happen? Those who, those who are in favor of abortion and support Planned Parenthood say things like, oh, you're just making this up, it's not true, it's been fabricated. The discussion that we are having is not about the issues being raised in the video, it's, it's on the nature of truth. It's on the, the nature of how you know something. So often what we find in the world that we live in where material can be, uh, can be changed and uh, reality can be shaped is this discussion of what's real, what's, what's true. How do, how do you know if something is right? Indeed, we live in a time now that is built around this concept that that truth itself is malleable, that, that truth can be changed depending on how badly you want something to be true, that if you put out enough good feelings, if you have enough positive thoughts, you can change the fabric of reality. And we are the center of the universe and we get to change things and create them in the way that we want to. This is absolutely, categorically not the message of the gospel. See, the gospel is based on the reality that there is one truth, that there is one reality, that there is one bedrock 
upon which everything rests. There is true things and there are false things. There is good and there is bad. There is dark and there is light. And as human beings created in the image of God, it is our job to seek out that which is true and reject that which is false, to embrace that which is good and reject that which is bad. Because no matter how much you want something true to be false, it will not become false. The truth is the truth no matter what you want it to be. This, this is, as so often in what we talk about, this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that we invented in the last 50 years. Relativism and the, the, the wishful thinking that we find in it is not something new. It's not something that has just sprung up. This is a reality of the human heart. It's part of our desire to be God, our desire to supplant authority. And so if you'll read with me in chapter 11, we're going to see Jesus speaking directly to this. Okay, if you guys recall, Jesus has just gotten done answering John the Baptist. We're, we're in the part in the book of Matthew where Jesus is responding to people's responses to Jesus. Right? We're, we're looking at the way that people are responding to Christ the Messiah, how they view him and what they do with the information. Christ has already laid out all of the evidence. He's already done all the miraculous things. He's already done all of the things that prove that he is who he says he is. And now we're looking at how people respond to that. We looked at John's response, his doubt. And now we're going to look at the response of other people. So starting in verse 7, as these men were going away, and he's speaking about the disciples of John, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you the one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. This is a lot. There's a lot here. This is oftentimes one of those passages where when people are reading through the Gospels, you skim through this because none of it makes any sense. It's a lot of contradictory statements, a lot of things that are kind of jumbled in there. So we're going to try to tease this out. We're going to try to pull this thread and find out what exactly Jesus is talking about here. What we have to realize is that Jesus is really speaking to those individuals in the crowd who have been criticizing John the Baptist. Okay? John's ministry, for all intents and purposes, has failed. And as the saying goes, victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. 
And so all these people have now begun to turn on John. They're saying things that are bad about John. They're talking about John. They're saying, this guy was a weirdo. He's, he's a weirdo. Right? He, he's, he's obviously got issues in his head. And oh, by the way, I mean, look, look at the lack of faith he had. Right? The person that he said was the Messiah, now he's questioning it. Look how inconsistent, he, how inconsistent he is. How could anybody have ever thought that he was a prophet? And so Jesus is asking the people who they thought John, John was. He's saying, why did you go out in the desert to watch this guy? Did you go out to see a, a, a reed swaying in the wind? Did, did, did you go out to see just a, just a wind in the trees? No. This guy is the person that you always thought he was. He was the person standing in the desert speaking truth to power. He drew you out into the desert because he said the powerful and uncomfortable things that both drew you and repelled you at the same time. That essence of a prophet who says the things that you wish someone could say, the things that make you uncomfortable deep down because you know that they speak to you. This is absolutely a prophet from God. But see, he's, he's more than just a prophet. He's more than just a prophet. And, and so he asked him, he said, why are you objecting to the clothing he wore? Why are you objecting to the way that he dressed and the things that he ate? People that wear nice clothes and eat fancy food live in palaces. They're yes men. They're the king's prophets who, tell, who say what the king wants. This isn't John the Baptist. John the Baptist lived as a person outside of society, criticizing society. So don't all of a sudden turn around and say that he's inconsistent or that somehow he has become weak. A momentary lapse brought on by being in prison for a long time does not destroy a prophet. And a person who wears weird clothing and does strange things does them because he is under the call of God. See, the people knew intuitively deep down exactly what John was, and Jesus is now saying it to him: This man is a prophet, but more than a prophet. He's a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. And so John, then Jesus then begins to tell them exactly who John is. And he quotes from Malachi 3.1 that he is the prophet who is predicted to come before the Lord returned to his people. He is the prophet who makes the way in the desert. He is the prophet who is Elijah. The Elijah that will come to show the Messiah the last Several verses in the Old Testament speak about Elijah returning before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And Jesus is telling them that this man is Elijah. He's saying, of those who have been born of woman, that's his way of saying everybody, no one is greater than John the Baptist. No one's message is more important than John the Baptist. We've got to ask ourselves, why would that be? You mean, so John the Baptist is greater than Moses who brought the law? Yes. John the, John the Baptist is, is, is more important than King David? Yes. That's what Jesus is saying. Because see, John the Baptist has the key to the kingdom of God. He is the one who begins to preach this message of repentance to the people of God. This message that human sinfulness is not 
a national problem, it's an individual problem. That the people that are listening to him are not simply people living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They are people who are steeped in human sin, and that sin is their problem. They're not people who need to be liberated from an external oppressor. They are people who stand in judgment and who are in danger of punishment. He brings this idea of personal repentance, this idea of personal sin that must be atoned for on a personal level. He sets the people up, putting them into an introspective view where they look at themselves and see the darkness that's there. This is why John the Baptist is greater than anyone who has come before. He takes the law that has been brought by Moses and applied by David and spoke about by the prophets, and he takes it, forms it into a knife, and sticks it right into the people's heart and twists it. Nobody likes that. Nobody can stand that for very long. And so the people begin to reject him. And what does Jesus say? He says, the kingdom of God is being oppressed by evil men, by dangerous men. This message of the coming kingdom, this message of the kingdom of God that's about to break forth is being actively opposed or hijacked. People like Herod or the, the temple party are taking these men who are prophesying and they're throwing them in jail, crushing them opposing them, oppressing them. And, and then from underneath, you have these, these people that are responding to it who can't stand living under the yoke of the oppression. And so they're going out and they're fighting a guerrilla war. They're, they're living like, like insurgents. They were, they were called the Sicarii, the dagger men, the zealots. Both of these parties, both of these people are, are stealing the message of the kingdom. So Jesus is saying, no, don't pay any attention to them. Pay attention to John's message. You are a sinner. You must repent. You must change. Don't worry about the Romans. Don't worry about the temple party. You have to change. You seek salvation. And yet, despite the fact that this is an incredibly important man, that he is probably the most important man that has ever lived up to this point, he is less than anyone in the kingdom of heaven. The least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist because John has just received a message from God and has served as a prophet, but the individual who is in the kingdom of God has God living within them. They have a relationship with God. They have been washed from their sins. Their nature has changed they, they are no longer a child of Adam, tainted with his sin. No, no, if you're in the kingdom, if you have been born again, if you've been, been bought by, by the blood of Christ, if you've accepted that on yourself, you've changed. You're different. God, God doesn't see you the same way. You're not the same thing anymore. There's this image in the Old Testament of of Moses coming down from the mountain, Moses who has seen the glory of the Lord, who has looked in the face of God and not died, and his face is glowing with this, this light, this reflected glory from God. And the people in 
the camp can't stand it. They can't look at it. They, they can't stand looking at him. And so he wears a veil because the, the people cannot see the glory of God. And, and in, in the, the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about how we who are born again, who live in the kingdom of God, can see the glory of God without a veil. There's, there's nothing that has to guard us from God's presence because we're, we're new creations made clean by Christ. And so the, the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. This man that, they, that the, the people were opposing. See, John was the Elijah that was predicted in Scripture. He was the one that was going to open the way into this new kingdom so that people could be changed and made new. His message was transformative. He spoke the words of God's truth with fire. And he was opposed by people who did not want to believe it. They wanted it to not be true. They denied it. But no matter how much they denied it, no matter how much they wanted it not to be true, it didn't change. It didn't make it not true. See, the truth is the truth, no matter whether you believe it or not. I want you to continue with me in 15 as he's going to start to talk about the response that these people had to Jesus and the, and the response that they had to John. He says in verse 15, or starting in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, I, I want to I stop for a second and explain this because this has always confused me. What he is... What he's picturing here is children in the street playing a game. One group is, is supposed to play the flute and the other group is going to dance. They're going to pretend like they're at a wedding. It's children pretending. And the one group plays the flute and the other group dances. One group sings the dirge, a funeral song, and the other group are supposed to act like mourners at a wedding. Except half the group isn't playing. The, the one group of children plays the flute, and the other group of children just kind of sits there. It doesn't do anything. It, I love my son. We, we have a hard time with organized sports sometimes, playing ball and that kind of thing. I'm not really coordinated, but I'm trying really hard to make him coordinated because I'd like him to be able to you know, play skill positions rather than be on the line like I was. Um, and it's not going well because whenever we get out there to play like sports, whenever we like kick the soccer ball back and forth or throw the football, he, he doesn't want to throw and catch the ball. He wants to create rules and complex scoring systems and redefine things and invent crazy games. And so we can't ever get to the place where we learn how to play the game because we've spent all of our time developing rules. I, I'm, I'm trying to initiate, but he's not responding and it becomes frustrating. It becomes frustrating sometimes. Um, that's what's going on here. God has come down to his people. He has revealed himself through John, and the people have rejected him. He's revealing himself through Christ, and the people are rejecting him. And so Jesus keeps going, and he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
And so John the Baptist practices extreme asceticism, like a prophet in the Old Testament. This is a man who is fulfilling all the expectations of a prophet. He's a man that goes out into the desert. That's where prophets are made, right? He wears funny clothing. He's wearing animal skins, right? He's supposed to look weird. That's what a prophet's supposed to do. He is a Nazarite, so that means he doesn't cut his hair or his beard, okay? This is a weird-looking dude, long before Duck Dynasty, right? Long before Duck Dynasty, he's got the crazy Duck Dynasty beard hanging down. Right? Doesn't have a girlfriend. Now that's partly because of the Nazarite vow, that's partly because he has a beard that hangs down to here and he lives out in the desert and chicks don't dig guys who eat bugs and eat honey, okay? So this is John the Baptist. He's out there, he's wild, he's crazy. He's saying crazy stuff. And the people who he, said, who he calls uh, a brood of vipers, the people who he is criticizing, say, this guy is possessed by a demon, obviously. But here comes Jesus, and Jesus is gentle compared to John. Jesus is mild compared to John. Jesus eats with prostitutes, right? He drinks wine with tax collectors. He hangs out with sinners, bad folks, people who don't look like you or I. And the people who he calls hypocrites and empty tombs filled with decay say, look at this guy, he's a drunk and a party boy. Can't listen to anything he says. Jesus is... That's all right, we'll wait. <laughs> and so, and so Jesus... So Jesus responds and points out to them, this has nothing to do with what John ate or drank or the way that he eat, the way that he ate. It has nothing to do with what Jesus was doing. It has everything to do with the rejection that these people have for the message that's being brought. See, they don't like the truth. They don't like what the truth says. And so they're going to make up any reason possible, any smokescreen, any side reason, any, any red herring as to why this truth should not apply to them. And if you can't attack the truth, you attack the person that brings the truth. And you throw up as many different kinds of roadblocks as possible to deflect the fact that you are not where you should be. Jesus, in his incredibly insightful way cuts right through the smoke, demolishes all of the roadblocks, and says this. He says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The truth will out. The truth will always out. See, John was fulfilling his role as the final prophet. Jesus was fulfilling his role as the man who was to come, the Messiah, and the people were rejecting him. And Jesus quotes to them a final proverb, and he says, the truth will be known by her deeds. Uh, there's another way to translate that says that the truth will be known by her children. There is this concept in the Old Testament, in Jewish mythology, in Jewish lore, that the truth is a woman who trains her children up in wise things, and they go out and they're successful. 
And the idea here, the metaphor is that God's truth brings forth flourishing in life. God's truth affects people. The truth of God, the wisdom of God applied to life is obvious. And so Jesus is looking at these men and he's saying, you can deny this as much as you want to. You can make up as many excuses as you want to, but ultimately the wisdom of God will become known. The wise men have turned their back on John and they are about to condemn Jesus. And history will look at these men and mock them for thousands of years. When we read this, we look at them and who are the villains in the New Testament? Oh, they're the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the people who rejected, rejected Jesus. The people who had been waiting for a Savior for a thousand years and when he showed up, they killed him. The people that had been speaking about the Elijah that was to come, and when they found him, they mocked him and cut his head off. These people who thought that they were so wise, who thought that they had the power to redefine truth, that they were the ones that got to set the agenda for God and how he was going to return to his people, missed it big time. And they will spend from now until Christ returns as the generation that killed their own Savior. Because, see, the truth will always out. Wisdom will be known by the result of its actions. But there's something else that's going on here. See, Christ came to preach wisdom. John came to preach wisdom. They came to bring the truth. But it was something even more significant than that because Jesus himself is the wisdom of God. This is not just a prophet who's come to say cool things, to, to, to talk about things that you should do and the way that you should treat each other. He's not just this great moral teacher. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes Jesus as the wisdom of God. He's not just somebody who brings the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. See, these men are standing in the presence of the Ancient of Days. They are standing in the presence of Yahweh, God of hosts. They are standing in the presence of God. And they are rejecting Him. They are making the same sin that Adam made in the garden when he walked with God and talked with God and then looked God in the face and spit at Him and said, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want you. I want to be God. I want to be in control. That's what these people are doing. They're saying, I know this is the truth, and I don't want it to be. Because if this is the truth, then it means I can't be righteous on my own. It means this, this, this edifice of good works that I have spent my entire life building is worthless and pointless. That my life's work means nothing. And that's a scary thing. Brothers and sisters, the truth is the truth, whether you accept it or not. And the truth will always out. During, during World War II, there were German communities that lived literally in the shadow of the concentration camps. Every day, day in and day out, they lived within sight of the smokestacks. They saw trains of Jews come in and trucks worth of 
Trucks filled with shoes and teeth and clothing leave. They saw the smoke from the crematoriums and they smelled the smell of burning bodies. And they pretended that nothing was happening. My grandfather liberated one of these camps at the end of the war. And the people all claimed that they didn't know what had happened. They were shocked, shocked that this was going on. And they took these people to the camps and made them dig mass graves. They made them care for the emaciated children that were slowly starving to death. They had spent five years denying the truth, not wanting to believe that they were capable of that, not wanting to believe that horrible things were happening just around the corner because, after all, if they had believed it, then they would have to do something about it. They wanted it to not be true, but it didn't change anything. See, the truth is the truth, whether you admit it or not, and the truth will always out. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder how much we are like those people. So many people live in the sight of the abortion issue, and they say, well, it's not really, it's not really mine to judge. It's not really mine to say. It's not something that I can talk about. It's really complicated. It's not complicated. Hundreds of thousands of children die every year. They die because people kill them. They die because many are too cowardly to stop it. They die because a majority of the people in the country do not want it to be true. That doesn't make it not true, though. See, the truth is the truth, no matter whether you believe it or not. Truth exists. God has revealed it, right? Our entire religion, our entire way of life is based on the idea that our God cares about what we do and that He is not silent, that He has spoken in Scripture about what things are right and what things are wrong, that we are made in the image of God, and that to kill a child is a horrible, horrible thing, that we are responsible for our actions. He says many, many things. And just because we don't want to believe that they are true, it does not make them untrue. See, the truth is the truth, whether you agree with it or not. Killing an unborn child is murder. But there are many, many other things that are truth that we don't want to believe. Right? It's easy sometimes to talk about this as Christians who live in our little bubble here, as Christians who come into this church. There are many things that God says that are wrong. Having sex outside of marriage is wrong. Looking at pornography is wrong. Lying on your taxes is wrong. And so, God help me, is speeding. There are many, many things that are wrong. And even though I don't want them to be true, they're still true. I wonder how often we believe things about the gospel that are untrue because we want them to be true. 
We want to believe that Jesus is just this, this super nice guy who tells us to be cool to each other and doesn't say anything mean. It's not true. We want hell to not exist. We want everybody to go to heaven, including our pets. It's not true. Scripture is very clear about who God is and what He does. St. Augustine said once, if you believe what you want to believe in the Bible and don't believe what you don't want to believe, it's not God that you worship, it's yourself. And so I would challenge each of you today, what lies are you believing today? What things about God do you not want to be true? What are you hiding from? Because it's easy to pick on Planned Parenthood, and believe me, I love to do it. I do. You guys read my face. I love it. But how many of us tell ourselves lies on a daily basis? Some of you in this room are telling yourself the lie that you're saved. That Christ doesn't care about the little sins that you commit and that you're okay. After all, you grew up in the church or you're a good person or you've never actually killed anyone. So I would tell you this, before you talk about abortion, before you talk about Planned Parenthood, before you do anything else, I want you to evaluate yourself today. I want you to ask yourself, are you believing a lie? Are you believing that it's enough just to be a sort of okay person? Have you truly, truly accepted Christ? Is it your faith or is it the faith of your parents? Is it your faith or is it the faith of the community around you? Is it is it your faith? Do you believe that Christ died on the cross to forgive you from your sins? More than anything else, this is critical. Because the truth is the truth. Whether you accept it or not, and the truth has consequences. There are many people who have sat for 50 years in a pew and gone straight to hell when they die because they never had a relationship with Christ they never were born again. They never changed their nature. They never accepted that gospel of repentance. So today, today, search your soul. Search your soul and ask yourself if you're believing a lie about where you're going to end up. Because brothers and sisters, the truth is the truth. Whether you accept it or not, it can condemn you or it can free you. And I'd ask that you accept it today. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have questions about this, if you, if you are unsettled inside your heart, I ask that you would come forward. We will pray with you. We will talk with you. You can be sure today. If you have spent huge amounts of your life wandering from place to place without a home, Come and join us. Join this place. We would love to be a place for you to grow and become strong and become confident in your faith. As I say every week, we are not perfect. But we do know who is. And we'll help you find him. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear sweet Jesus, God, I ask you to be in this place tonight, this morning, not tonight, 
I ask that you would watch over us. I ask that you would be in the congregation here, that if there are any that do not know you, that you would rip them apart for you, that you would tear open their heart and lay it bare before you, remove all of the veils, do whatever you need to do, God, to, to breathe life into them. God, I ask that you would awaken in us a desire to make your truth known, that you would make us deeply and truly concerned with the lives of all of the individuals in this community, that you would help us to seek out those who are struggling, whether it's with an unwanted pregnancy or with decisions that they made in their past, Lord, that we would be a church that shows forgiveness and love, that we would be a church that shows redemption and peace, that we'd be a church that binds up the brokenhearted and leads people to new life in you. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.